You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. your way to Luke chapter 3. This morning we're going to look at verses 15 through 20 together. We're picking up where we left off last week. We're continuing on in a series titled From the Manger to the Throne. And today we're in Luke chapter 3. Our passage is verses 15 through 20. I want to invite you to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Luke 3, beginning in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. May God bless now the preaching of his word. This morning I want to begin by asking you to consider a question. And I would say this is by far the most important question that you could answer. And it's this question. What Is Jesus worth to you? What is Jesus worth to you? I don't just mean, do you believe in him? What do you think about him? What is he worth to you? Maybe to ask it a little differently, is Jesus your supreme treasure? Not just do you believe he's your savior, he died on a cross so that you don't have to experience the judgment you deserve and you get to go to heaven. No, is is he your supreme treasure? I believe if we were to ask the Apostle Paul, one of the prominent, most prominent figures in the New Testament apart from Jesus Christ, a man who wrote 13 of our 27 books of the New Testament, most likely The man whom Luke was influenced by, as we see from the book of Acts, Luke traveled with Paul extensively. I think if we were to ask the Apostle Paul this question, I know how he would have answered it. If you were to have asked the Apostle Paul, how much is Jesus worth to you? Here's what the Apostle Paul would say. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, 
He said this. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. According to these verses, the thing that happened in Paul's life that caused him to renounce his former way of living, to renounce his former beliefs, to no longer put confidence in the things he used to put confidence, what happened to the Apostle Paul that changed his life and trajectory? The answer, Christ became his supreme treasure. Look again at verse, or listen again to verse 8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus Christ became the supreme treasure. For the Apostle Paul. And church, if we want to faithfully follow Jesus Christ, the same must be true for us today. See, when we behold the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we begin to treasure Him above all. Let me say that again. When, when we behold the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we begin to treasure Him above all. All. See, when we ponder John's response to the crowd here in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, and, and, and we consider how he responds to this inquiry, whether he is the Christ, we begin to see that it was John's main point. John was eager to do one thing. He was eager to use this moment in which people were saying, well, maybe, maybe John's the one. What does John do? John is eager to point out the supremacy of Christ. Did you notice that John's answer to the, to the inquiry of the crowd was not a direct no? He doesn't begin by saying, no, I'm not the Messiah. Obviously, he, he wanted everyone to know that he wasn't. But he doesn't answer directly. How does he say to them, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Christ? What does he do? He states that the one who is the Christ is far superior than he is. He points to the supremacy of this coming one. Because if you want to know who he is, he's superior and far superior than I am. 
is what John is saying. See, it's the superiority of Jesus that will set him apart. So when people are are watching John's ministry, they see what's been taking place. It's clear that God is moving. Their question is, John, how will we know when when the Christ appears? You keep telling us He's coming. How will we know? I mean, we look at you, and you bear all the marks. How do we know? John says, it's the superiority of the one who's coming. It'll be clear. You'll know at that point. See, in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20, we get to behold the supremacy of Christ by reflecting on the following three things. His supreme power, His supreme gift, and His supreme position. Those are the three things that John draws attention to in answer to this question. As people are wondering, is John the Christ? John uses this moment to say, no, no, there's one who's coming who is far superior. How do you know? His supreme power, his supreme gift, and his supreme position will make it abundantly clear. So let's begin with his supreme power, verse 15. Luke begins by telling us this, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might the Christ. Luke informs us here that due to the nature of John's ministry and the fruitfulness of John's ministry, people are beginning to wonder whether John is the long-awaited Messiah. And notice what Luke says about the crowd's posture. It says there was expectation. We can move right past that. This is a good thing. The people are now filled with expectation. The Messiah's coming. It's a good thing. They're longing for the Messiah. And then, not only does, does Luke tell us there was expectation, he says they're questioning in their hearts. They're taking serious consideration as they see all the details unfolding. They see John's ministry, and not only does it make their heart burn for the longing of the for the coming of the Messiah, but they're beginning to wonder. They're beginning to be thoughtful. This is a good thing. And I wanna I wanna point out what's happening here in verse 15 and what's taking place among the crowds in order to acknowledge a wonderful work of God that's taking place among some who've been attending on Sundays. There is a wonderful work of God that I, I, I feel like in light of verse 15 that it's right to acknowledge and give God praise for. To quote from J.C. Ryle, a 19th century pastor who we've recommended his commentary on Luke for your devotions, he said the following. He says, The cause of true religion has gained a great step in a congregation or a family, when people begin to think. Thoughtlessness about spiritual things is one of the great failures of unconverted people. Let us always thank God when we see a spirit of reflection on religious subjects coming over the mind of unconverted people. Consideration is the high road to conversion. Thinking, no doubt, is not faith and repentance. 
But it is always a hopeful symptom. When hearers of the gospel begin to muse in their hearts, we ought to bless God and take courage. Now, why do I share that? Well, if this quote describes you in any way, you've been coming on Sunday mornings and you would not identify yourself as a Christian. You have not put your faith in Jesus. You have not repented of your sin. But you are coming and you are leaning in and you are listening. We want you to know we are glad you're here. And not only are we glad you're here. We thank God that you are here listening and leaning in. And our prayer is that God would bring you to saving faith. And Lord, we we thank you for drawing people to yourself. May you draw many more as you have drawn us to saving faith. May you you continue to draw people to yourself. Next, we see in verse 16 that Luke moves from this inquiry of the crowd to the explanation as they're wondering in their hearts, "Is, is John the one we've been waiting for John sees this as an opportunity to say, no, I'm not the one. And this is what John said. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The first thing John states, making it abundantly clear that no, I'm not the Christ, As everyone is wondering, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one who is to come. How how do we know? John says, because the one who's coming is far superior to me. John, John makes this point by using a euphemism. A euphemism that would have made sense to the original audience in which John was speaking. It would have made a lot of sense to Luke's original audience. And it's this euphemism where John says, the one who's coming, I'm not even worthy to take off his sandal. You want to know how great he is? You know how mighty he is? If you're wondering, if I'm the one, listen, the one who's coming, I can't even take off his shoes. The original audience would have understood what that is. Men. John's saying, this guy is so beyond me in greatness. I, yeah, I'm not even going to be able to take off his sandal. Now, we could spend time talking about what that meant in this context of, of the day. But if I could use a modern day expression that has really gained popularity and familiarity because of the world of sports, I think this would help. I would imagine that maybe not all, but most, have heard the term, the GOAT. Capital G, period, O, period, A, period, T, period. It's not a word, it's a term. It's a term used in sports that means the greatest of all time. You heard that expression? That's often used in sports, like in basketball, there is debate about who's the GOAT. Is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron James? Is it Kobe Bryant? Well, that's what's happening here in in, in John's euphemism. That the one who's coming, 
I can't even take off his sandal. To loosely borrow this expression, think of John saying to the crowds that are wondering whether he's the Christ, no, the one who's coming is the goat. (laughs) He's the greatest of all time. It's not me. It'll be clear that he's the greatest of all time. But what makes him so? What makes him so great? Well, John tells us there are three things about him that make him superior. And the first thing that John mentions is that he is mightier than John. Notice that. He says, he's mightier than me. That word mightier means stronger, more powerful. And we must not forget in chapter 1, verse 17, what was prophesied about John. That he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, we're not told much about John's ministry, so we don't want to speculate too much. But if you know anything about Elijah, Elijah was pretty powerful, not just in what he said. He, he even did some miracles. We don't know what kind of things are happening with John. John is obviously seen as powerful to the point that people are beginning to wonder, maybe he's the Christ. And John says, oh, no, his power is far greater than mine. And the reason, the reason this this Christ will be far more powerful than John, it's simple. John is only a man. But the one who is coming, he is God in the flesh. Which means that he has the power to do what only God can do. See, John may be able to do some things, but there are things John can't do because at the end of the day, though John is a prophet sent by God, given authority by God, he's not God. But the one who's coming, he's going to do things God can do, like calm storms. If you pay attention when Jesus calms the storm and what the people, what the response of the disciples are, they say, no one can do that but God. It's not just a cool miracle. It's a God-like sign. See, the one who's coming, he's going to be able to calm storms, raise the dead, rise from the dead. His, His power is far greater. Now, in the weeks ahead, as we make our way through Luke's gospel, I want to encourage you, pay careful attention to the unique power of Jesus that's on display. Every time we come upon a miracle, pay careful attention. Each miracle is a display of Jesus' supreme power at work in the lives of people who are in desperate need. Every miracle is telling a story. Pay attention to each miracle because it's going to display Jesus' supreme power. So what do we take away from this point? Obviously, the Messiah has come. So how does this truth that John shared then encourage us and benefit us now? Well, church, take comfort that the supreme power of Jesus that was on display then is still on display now. Why do I say that? Because if you recall... Luke, he wrote a sequel. It's called the book of Acts. And listen to how the book of Acts begins. 
Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Did you hear how Luke begins his sequel? In the first book, I I began to tell you all that Jesus began to do when he was here. And what's the book of Acts? The book of Acts is the story of all that Jesus continues to do. The question is, how can he do all of those things? Well, he's the risen and reigning Lord. And if he's the risen and reigning Lord, he's still able to work today. So this, this power that we're going to see in, on display in Luke's gospel, it, it's not just the power of, of a Savior who for a limited time displayed His power on earth, and now He's up in heaven, and, and we just have to read about it. He's still a powerful Savior because He's risen and He's reigning. And we should expect to see His power on the earth Doing things that only he can do. Which raises this question. How can Jesus demonstrate his power on earth if he's now ascended to heaven? Well, that brings us to the second thing we see. John points to the supreme power of Jesus. Now we see the supreme gift that this Christ is going to bring. Look at verse 16. How how does John respond to this inquiry, whether he's the Christ? He says, listen, I will baptize you with water. That's what I'm doing. Let's be clear. I'm baptizing with water. The one who's coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Not the same. (laughs) What does that mean? What makes Jesus greater than John? John says, my my baptism is symbolic and physical. His baptism will be spiritual and transformative. How will you know when He comes? He's not just going to dunk you in some water. He's going to come upon you in power. He's going to Utterly change you and the world. You'll know, believe me. What I'm doing is important. It's preparatory. I'm just baptizing you with water that's symbolic. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. Now think about what John's saying here. This is so important. What makes Jesus supreme and unique? Or maybe to ask it differently, what would be a sign that we would know that Jesus is the Christ? Isn't that what the people are asking? John, how do we know you're not the Christ? John could have said, oh, he's going to do amazing miracles. Just wait. Oh, you think my teaching is great? You haven't heard anything. Prepare yourself for the Sermon on the Mount. 
but he doesn't. John, are, are you the Christ? Oh no, you'll know when the Christ comes. How? How will we know? He doesn't say it's because of his miracles. He doesn't say it's because of his teaching. He doesn't even say he's going to rise from the dead. John says it's the gift of the Holy Spirit given to the people that will be the clear evidence that he's the Christ. Take that in. Ponder that for a moment. Do you understand the point John's making? Only one who is supreme could give such a supreme gift. Are you following that now? John, how do we know this one is going to be superior? Because he's going to give a supreme gift. And no one can give a supreme gift if they're not supreme. Why is that? Think about it. If the Holy Spirit is God and is equal in every way with the Father and the Son, then who can give someone God except God himself? Do you see the point John's making? How will you know he's superior? He's going to give you a supreme gift. He's going to give you God himself. And who can give someone God who isn't God? So how will people know that Jesus is supreme? John says, behold, the supreme gift He gives His people the Holy Spirit. That's the supreme gift He gives His people. And by giving them this supreme gift, it's going to point to His supremacy. Now John uses the language of baptism because John is baptizing and so he basically is saying, When Jesus gives this gift, he uses the same language. He's going to baptize. You're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. So here are two questions we must answer quickly, but they're important to answer before we move on. When did this baptism in the Holy Spirit occur? At what point does this take place? And when does it occur for us? When did this occur? It sounds like this is an event that's going to happen. When did it happen? And when does it occur for us? Well, going back to Acts chapter 1. A minute ago I read verses 1 through 3. Let me read verses 4 through 5. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when is this baptism occurring? It obviously did not occur during Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is about to ascend and he says, guys, stay here in Jerusalem because that thing I told you about that John said was going to happen... It's, it's going to happen. And you shouldn't do ministry until it happens. You need what's about to happen. So wait for it. What's he referring to? Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. 
all of a sudden, the Spirit is poured out on God's people in a pronounced way. And, and, and it makes a, a public spectacle. People are questioning what in the world is going on. It requires an explanation. And Peter begins to explain. And he explains by quoting from the prophet Joel. The prophet Joel said this. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above this uh, above and signs on earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness the moon to blood before the day of the lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the lord shall be saved so all of a sudden the spirits poured out people go what in the world is going on and and, and Peter's explanation, Joel 2, was just fulfilled. But he doesn't stop there. Beginning in verse 22, he begins to preach about Jesus Christ, whom they had crucified. And he connects the outpouring of the Spirit with Christ. And he helps the people see how, how these two go together. And then he ends by addressing them. In verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And listen to what happens. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And He said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So when did this baptism take place? On the day of Pentecost. When does it take place in our lives? According to Luke 2 and other places in the New Testament. When we come to saving faith. We receive the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So much so. That, that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says this. You however are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So to have Christ is to have the Spirit. Those two go together. Someone says, I, I belong to Christ. Then you have the Spirit? The answer is no. You don't belong to Christ. Because when we come to Christ, we are given this gift. It's clear from the teaching in the New Testament. Anyone who belongs to Christ has been baptized with the Spirit, and the Spirit is 
a gift. And if we belong to Christ and we've been given this supreme gift, you know what this gift does? It enables us to behold the supremacy of Christ and to treasure him above all. I recently had the privilege a few weeks ago of taking a class at our pastor's college. I attended the pastor's college, but every few years I try to go back and take a class to just stay sharp. This was a class that was being offered and taught in a way that because who was teaching it, I really wanted to go. And it was a class on the Holy Spirit. Spent an entire week at our pastor's college just thinking about from Genesis to Revelation what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. I wish I could tell you the impact that that week had on my life. There were many things I took away. Not only did I learn more than anything, I was deeply affected. In one of the lectures, we came across this quote from J.I. Packer. And he says this, Imagine an inquirer attending an ordinary parish church or visiting a whole number of them for that matter for an entire year. Would he, by the end of that time, do you think, have become fully convinced that the gift of the Spirit to indwell God's people corporately and individually is the supreme and crowning blessing held forth by the gospel. Take that in. Packer says, what if someone came to your church or to the churches in your area and were here for a year as they interacted with you, listened to you pray, watched you fellowship, listened to the sermons, listened to you sing, would they at the end of the year say that the gift of the Spirit indwelling God's people corporately and individually is the supreme and crowning blessing of the gospel. I would hope that people would be able to say that if they spent a year in our midst. But that quote got me thinking. Is this... For most of us who love Jesus, who are grateful for our salvation, is the Spirit dwelling in us as God's people? Is it the supreme and crowning blessing? Packer goes on to say, We need frankly to recognize that explicit teaching concerning the Holy Spirit, leading Christians to appreciate the real significance of His indwelling, to experience the fullness of his power is sadly a rare thing at present time. Yet the Bible sets forth the bestowal and ministry of the Spirit as the true climax of God's generosity and the supreme glory of this gospel age. What's he saying? After asking that question, if someone would be with us for a year, would they say, that the giving of the Spirit is the supreme and crowning blessing held forth by the gospel, he would also say, if we go to the, the Scriptures, it's clear what a gift the Spirit is. And yet, have we neglected 
to see that the giving of the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit is the true climax of God's generosity. You want to know one of the sweetest, most generous gifts God could give you? One of the sweetest gifts of the gospel? The Holy Spirit. I can testify to you that after spending a week being taught about the Holy Spirit, here was the effect. My affection and my appreciation for the Holy Spirit have grown exponentially. And because of that, because my appreciation and affection for the Holy Spirit has grown, because I have seen that the Holy Spirit is a supreme gift, I can report to you, I treasure Christ more. Since that class, not only have I had a greater appreciation and affection for the Holy Spirit, my devotional time, my love for Christ has grown enormously. So let me ask you this question. Is the Holy Spirit a gift to you? I don't just mean theologically, would you say, well, sure. Did you notice the language of Acts 2.38? Repent. You'll be forgiven. Given the Holy Spirit. Those are two gifts. Anyone here that is aware of what you deserve and yet what you've been given because of the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, you say, to be forgiven of my sins, what a gift. What about the second one? You and I, if we're in Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit. That's not just icing on the cake. It's not a cherry on top. How often do we celebrate being forgiven of our sins? But when is the last time we've been in awe and wonder and didn't even have words to say, you have given me yourself. So what should you do if the Holy Spirit isn't a gift to you and you are a believer? There's probably a number of things I just want to mention you. First of all, pray. And in that prayer, confess that you are neglecting a sweet gift. Thank God for giving it to you. And say, Lord, forgive me that for whatever reason, I have not lived with a full awareness of what an incredible gift I have that you have given me in the Holy Spirit. And then ask the Lord, ask the Lord to begin to show you as we make our way through Luke, to show you the importance of the Holy Spirit, not just in the Bible, but for you and for me. That you and I cannot live the Christian life apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift to us. Let us see it as a gift. That brings us to the last thing. And 
move quickly here. And it's the supreme position. John points out three things that will show that this coming one is superior. His power, his supreme power, his supreme gift, now his supreme position. Did you notice John says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire? And then moves right from that to say when he comes, he's coming with his winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to clear the wheat into the barn and the chaff will be taken away. The third and final way in which John demonstrated that Jesus was supreme is by declaring that he has the role of judge. See, in verse 17, notice this. He has the authority to do what no one else can do. When he comes, he's going to baptize people in the Spirit. And he's going to come and he is going to separate the wheat from the chaff because it's his harvest field. See, John can call people to repentance as a messenger of God. But he can't forgive anybody of sins. John can preach a message of repentance. But John can't condemn any people to eternal judgment because he isn't the judge. So how will we know that John, you're not the Christ and when the Christ has come, he's going to do what no one else can do. He can forgive and he will condemn. That, friends, ought to remind us of who Jesus is and our response to Jesus. See, at Pentecost, God began the, to pour out His Spirit on those who repented of their sins. But listen, at Pentecost, He began to pour out the fire of His judgment for those who don't. Do you know what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17? After Pentecost, when he's there in Athens, he tells all of those, the days of ignorance God has overlooked, those days are gone. He is going to judge the world through a man. And how do we know? He rose him from the dead. The time has come. Listen. Jesus Christ is not a moral teacher, a spiritual leader, a miracle worker. He is the supreme savior of the world who must be treasured above all. Failing to treasure him above all. Listen. Failing to treasure him and to see his supremacy is idolatry and cosmic treason. It's not just something we shouldn't do. It is the height of rebellion. Not just not believing in Jesus. Failing to treasure Him is idolatry and cosmic treason. If He is supreme, He deserves supreme value. And failing to give Him that 
Jesus will make clear. You are saved. You will experience eternal punishment. Friends, Jesus must be treasured above all because he alone can do for you what no one else can do. He can save you, forgive you, change you, and give you the gift of God himself. That's why he's supreme. That's why he should be treasured above all. Now, why does Luke end this section the way he does? It seems out of step, but I think it makes a great point for us to close in. In verses 18 through 20, Luke gives us this summary statement about John's ministry. And it's clearly a summary statement for a number of reasons. One of them, do you notice it's chronologically out of place? (laughs) Because of John's ministry, he gets thrown in prison. Okay, then why does next passage, he's still baptizing when Jesus shows up? Well, obviously this is out of chronological order. What what Luke is doing here is he's bringing it in to John's ministry to point towards Christ who's coming. And I want to close with these words. Once again, the reflection from J.C. Ryle. I think this, this is a wonderful way to end. The way that Luke ends may seem perplexing, but it's actually quite beneficial that he helps us see, hey, John, John had a role, but John was only a man. John could be stopped. He was put in prison. Eventually, loses his head. This is what J.C. Ryle wrote. Man, when ordained, can minister the outward ordinance of Christianity with a prayerful hope that God will graciously bless the means which he himself has appointed. But man cannot read the hearts of those whom he ministers. He can preach the gospel faithfully to their ears, but he cannot make them receive it into their consciences. He can baptize them, but he cannot cleanse their inward nature. He can give the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper into their hands, but he cannot enable them to eat Christ's body and blood by faith. Up to a certain point he can go, but he can go no further. No ordination, however solemnly conferred, can give man power to change the heart. Christ. The great head of the church can alone do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is his peculiar office. And then he says this. May we never rest till we have tasted by experience the power of Christ's grace upon our souls. We have been baptized with water. But have we also been baptized with the Holy Ghost? Our names are in the baptismal register, but are they also in the Lamb's book of life? We are members of a visible church, but are also we members of the mystical body which Christ alone is the head? All these are privileges which Christ alone bestows and for which all who would be saved must make personal application to Him. Man cannot 
give them. They are treasures laid up in Christ's hand. From Him, we must seek them by faith, believing we shall not seek them in vain. Listen, John could only do so much. But John could not do what only Jesus can do. So the question for you and me this morning, what is our experience? What is your experience? Have you just walked an aisle and said a prayer? You've been baptized with water, but you say the Holy Spirit. Friends, let us not just read these words, hear these words, but not take them to heart. Christ is supreme. And because he's supreme, he must be treasured above all. So let me end where I began. What is Christ worth to you? Is he your supreme treasure? Let's pray. Father, your word has been doing its work. You've been speaking to our hearts and minds through the preaching of the word. Lord, I pray now that the good work you're doing will bear fruit and lasting fruit. Lord, I pray now that you would take these words Take this message, take this truth, and you would write it on our hearts. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of speaking to us, revealing yourself to us. Lord, I pray now that we would do what that crowd did then with John. We would consider in our hearts these deep questions. We would wrestle with them. We would submit to you all of these things. But most importantly, Lord, I pray that not a person in here would choose not to treasure you. May they treasure you above all. You are worthy of worship. You are glorious and supreme. So Lord, may we lift our eyes to you and claim you to be our treasure, not just with our mouths, but with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.